0: So, that said, I hope you enjoy today's episode.
1: Welcome to the Strategy Skills Podcast. My name is Chris Safarova. I'm your host. I am a founder and CEO of firmsconsulting.com and strategytraining.com. Joining us today is Travis Dosta. Travis is a vice president of communications for Texas Roadhouse and friend of Ken Taylor, founder of Texas Roadhouse. Ken died in March of this year just a short few months before his autobiography made from scratch would be ready for the release. Travis, thank you for joining us on the strategy skills podcast.
2: Wonderful to be here. Thank you for having me to talk about Kent, just an honor and a privilege to work for him for many years.
1: Travis, and you have been with Kent for about 18 years.
2: That's correct. Yes, 16 at Texas roadhouse. And then I was a consultant that worked with him for a number of years outside. So, uh, as we would say at Texas Roadhouse, has been a legendary ride.
1: So you are an amazing person to have this discussion. Could we start with Kent's story?
2: Absolutely. And I think his story is one that should resonate with anybody who has dreams. You know, Kent was just a normal teenager. And growing up, he said he had an idyllic life living in Louisville, Kentucky. And his life, he will admit, really changed in high school when he decided to go out for athletics. He joked that he saw Joe Namath and what kid in the 70s didn't want to be Joe Namath. So he tried out for the football team at Ballard High School. And I think a couple of practices in, he realized the coach said, you know, you're skinny, you're slow. You're going to get hurt out here. And he set him up with an appointment for with the track coach, Coach Dick Belmere, And I think to say track changed Kent's life is an understatement. He went in, he gave it his uh, shot. The coach said, you can't run. You don't have form and you're slow, and, uh, but I'll work with you. And what Kent did was, and I think it's really where he found himself and found what he could do because he didn't give up. He got that, you know, he'd been turned down for football. He didn't get glowing reviews and track. And he committed himself and said, "I you know, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to be the best. And he did do that, and he became a state champion. He became He's in the Hall of Fame of his high school for, for cross-country, and he also earned a scholarship to run track at the University of North Carolina, which is certainly beyond his dreams the first day he touched his feet touched the track at the Ballard High School. Uh, and I really believe track was a great metaphor for his life and, and taught him the valuable lessons that he would use at Texas Roadhouse for 28 years.
1: I love Kent's determination and his never give up attitude. And you see throughout his story, even the way he got his scholarship to university, where the coach didn't want to take him right away. But then before coach said no, Kent and his friend mentioned a couple of things that put Kent in coach's mind. And then once opportunity came up, he got the call. Could you tell us that story?
2: Kent always through his life, and I think it's great for any person working and anybody who wants to be a leader, would attach himself to those that were were better than him and that he could learn from and faster than him. And so he he trained one summer uh, because he certainly wasn't on anybody's radar, but then he became that champion. And a friend of his visited University of North Carolina. They offered him a scholarship. Kent hadn't run for that many years at this point, but when you said persistence, if you told Kent, no, the odds are that you just basically, he heard, yes, I just need to wear you down. And, and that's essentially what he did with the coach. He, he didn't take, I sorry, I don't have scholarships for an answer and just walked away. He kept his name there. He kept talking with his friend. And then he relays the story that when he got that phone call from the track coach offering him that scholarship. He just changed his life. It, I think it validated everything that he put the hard work in, running the hills, running twice and three times as hard as anybody else. I think that was his first true payoff that said hard work, resiliency, and never quit. That was his reward. And he would use that for the rest of his career.
1: Absolutely. Kent was also rejected more than 80 times as he pitched the idea for Texas Roadhouse And three of his five locations closed down early on. And in the book, Kent shares that rejection became a game for him. He kept on a score and rejection just became a number. Could you expand on how Kent approached rejection? And what do you believe were the key business lessons Kent learned during those initial tough days of starting Texas Roadhouse?
2: Most people, they may not have the confidence that their idea is that good maybe to begin with. And so when somebody says no, it's almost validation of, yeah, you're not that good. Kent, I think through his track career, had already shown, you know what, don't put me in this box. You don't know what I'm capable of, and I'm capable of more even than I know I can do. And, you know, he really only had two choices. I think it's like, okay, give up and go work for somebody else and let his dream die or make it a game. And, you know, he joked often that he was used to being turned down because he would ask uh, girls at dances and they'd say no, Mm -hmm. but he had to make it a game because I I think he felt like he was he he had no choice. But he also what maybe he wouldn't always say is that he would always learn from that rejection. So he would learn maybe body language or maybe how his approach didn't work as well. He just didn't take their, no, he took their advice. Maybe it was subtle advice and he worked every single pitch to get better and better. And so knew I think it was a numbers game that it's going to take a while to find that perfect fit, which thankfully he finally did find that perfect fit with the three doctors in town. Although he did chase down a number of, uh, famous folks to try to get them and in, in, to invest. And it made great stories of him uh, chasing Ross Perot around or Garth Brooks or, or Larry Bird. Mm-hmm. That persistence, I can tell you working for him, if he would ask somebody and say, hey, can we do this? And somebody would say, no, I don't think so. He would say, you know what? How can you say no? You haven't investigated. It. You haven't looked at it. He never believed no was an appropriate answer. And I think he learned that from the people that turned him down, because he could look back and say, you know, see what you missed out on?
1: Yes. He learned that no doesn't mean never. It sometimes just means not now.
2: That's exactly right. And some of those people I know he approached a number of times. And you know, one thing from that period of time that I just loved is Kent loved to Mm self-motivate. Very successful man, one of the most successful casual dining chains ever. In his office, he surrounded himself with failure. He had rejection letters framed. He had, uh, you mentioned three of our first five restaurants failed. And what Kent did was took an item from each one of those restaurants and put it on the wall of his office. So it was a constant reminder of his failures. And he used those failures. He used the no's to motivate him to get to yes. And I think he used his failures over his career to motivate him to never stop.
1: Absolutely. And then another thing that Ken did that I could also really resonate with because I did the same thing throughout my career is thinking like an owner about your job and your life. And he mentions that honest focus on results regardless of who is watching. And this is such a crucial lesson. And when people actually ask me, What was one important thing that contributed to my ability to go from where I started to where I am today, I actually shared that lesson with them, an ability to think and act like an owner. Could you expand on this lesson?
2: Absolutely. You know, people would say, what's the key to secret sauce to our restaurant? And If you look back over Ken's career, and he worked for a number of other restaurant companies, And he was always wanting to make the food better, the service better, the building better. And he was always told, just run the restaurant. One company, he came up with a chicken sandwich and uh, so in bottled water long before bottled water was as available as it is now. (laughs) And his sales were, his region was thriving. And he thought, man, I'm the big brass is coming to see me. I'm going to be, they're going to praise me. And he got in trouble. And they said, you know, why are you doing this? And so he realized, you know what? I think the only way to do this is be the owner. But what he did when he started Texas Shred House is so we have six hundred locations, and the men and women that run our restaurants, he wanted them to have ownership because he used to joke, which car do you drive better? your car or a rental car, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. chances are the car you own, you treat a little differently. So all of the men and women that run our restaurants have 10% ownership of the building and they get bonused on sales of the restaurant. So the better they do, the more money they make. One of my favorite stories is one of the gentlemen that worked for us said, every other company I worked with told me how to run a restaurant. Texas Roadhouse is teaching me how to own a restaurant and he knew that owner mentality when somebody put their name over the door that said they were an owner, they would just run it differently. It was a reflection of them. But it also gave them, you know, when, when you have ownership of something, you want to make it better. And he got some of his greatest ideas for this company from folks running our restaurants that would say, hey, have we tried this on the menu or I have an idea for how to make it faster, how to make the kitchen more efficient. And so I, you are so right on that ownership mentality that he never wanted us to get away from that. It didn't want people just to feel like they were an employee. Now he would say, you guys are owners.
1: Travis, and this managing partner program you mentioned now, I also agree with you. It's such an incredible idea. And I bet that was one of the reasons why you became so successful as a business I was wondering if you have any advice for our listeners who would consider implementing something like that within their organization. Let's say they own a business. Maybe it is not a restaurant business, a different type of business, but where they could also implement some kind of managing partner program. Could you give us some advice based on what you learned?
2: Absolutely. Kent called it having skin in the game. He said, if you You have have ownership in it, Certainly, you've put your name on it and you want it to do better. Otherwise, it's somebody else's. And I'm sure there are studies out there that show ownership in the business. It gives you a different outlook. It gives you a different outlook every single day. It gives you that confidence. You know, he wanted all of our employees here at our support center or corporate office to share in ownership of how the stores do. So, for example, everybody in this from the mailroom to the, the the CEO is bonused on how our stores as a whole perform. He also wanted everybody to have a stock program. He didn't want to pursue any other way. He said, I want ownership and the stock is the way we can own it. Kent would always say, I didn't invent that program. I didn't invent this ownership model, but I'm one of the last companies that hasn't gotten rid of it. And he used to joke and said, What will happen? And he saw it with number of companies over the years people will start it and then they're doing so well and they see how much it might be costing them and they get rid of it. And he always said, Guess what happened? When you get rid of that program, so did your success drops. And so I think the important thing is never be afraid to share in the success of the business. He wanted to share it with everybody. Any idea was not his idea. He, he always gave it to the owners. He deflected everything back because, you know, the old phrase, rising tide lifts all boat. And I'm always shocked, Chris, how many companies don't see that model and say, why wouldn't we do that?
1: Another key lesson from Kent that is very aligned with the key lesson I learned in life as well if you work really hard, you will eventually get where you want to go and be somewhat likier than others think you would have been. Could you expand on that?
2: Kent proved from day one until he passed away, he was not afraid of hard work and it resonates. And, and I just said this recently. One of the things I love about our company is everybody, no matter their position, is putting out actual work. We're not directing. We don't ask other people to do work we won't do. And Kent, probably two months before he passed away, he spent a weekend in Indianapolis working in two of our restaurants, working the dish machine, washing dishes. And he wanted to learn what they were going through. He worked the drive-through because he was trying to create and make the drive-through faster. I think there's a misnomer sometimes that people think the higher I get on the ladder of success, maybe the less hands-on work that I do. And it's all just, I'm telling others what to do. And Kent was never wired that way. You know, he was one of the hardest working people. He hardly ever turned it off. Always had an idea, but he just didn't share ideas. He would share the idea and then say, Let, how do we do it? And I'll give you a good example. We have jukeboxes in all of our restaurants and it plays music and shifts. And he said, I want that same system put in my office in my house. So I could listen and see to make sure, because one of his main things, he said, I don't want the same song played in an hour. The average guest time, our, our guests spend an hour in our restaurants. And he said, I wanted to play new songs. And so he put that in, he put in the work to listen. I, I mean, we're talking 14,000 songs probably. Mm-hmm. And Of course, guess what? He found some that were repeating throughout the hour. Mm-hmm. You know, that would have been so easy for him to say, hey, so and so do this, so and so. He was never afraid to put in the
1: work. Yes. So Kent was involved in day-to-day <laughs> up until his death.
2: Some would say too involved.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yes. I was yeah. wondering when you were checking out potential locations, what Kent was looking for?
2: Yeah, so you know, and he always visited, nobody ever knew who he was when he went to a town. Mm-hmm award logo. He didn't take a bunch of people. A couple of things that he looked for. We do not do national advertising. So he always said our building, which is about seven, 8,000 square feet, got neon signs on the outside. He said, I need high visibility. I want people to be able to see that sign, see that billboard of our, our restaurant and come in. So he loved very, what we call high traffic areas we are not open for lunch during the week. So unlike a lot of concepts that are lunch and dinner, he wanted to be located more near where people lived rather than where they worked because he had studied this and seen that a lot of people got off work, went home, talked to their family about where they're going to eat. So you need to be closer to the rooftops rather than the businesses because we we just don't Mm -hmm. do a lot of business during lunch. We've always had sort of a rural approach Again, because we didn't advertise and don't advertise and we're not open for lunch. And I can explain why a little uh, later, but he wanted to be in the smaller areas, maybe kind of what we call uh, tertiary markets. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then even the last year, he really wanted to go to to even smaller, maybe towns of 60,000 people. Mm -hmm. And those areas may be underserved from steakhouse restaurants but also he always found in many of those towns if you understand we have this community mentality where we're doing fundraisers for the boy scouts and little league and we we are in the in, in and around that town and, and that that had greater impact in smaller towns the last thing before we got to real estate kent would always say he always said we're a people first business that just happens to serve stakes we had a people uh, mentality that we hired the person that was going to run that store before we found the real estate, because he wanted to make sure the, the, the man or woman that was going to be the owner of that restaurant could be in our system and we could be training them for a year before they took over the restaurant. He used to make the analogy, you don't buy a brand new car and give it to a 16-year-old without making sure they've mm-hmm. been, they have can drive the car. And so find the person and then go find the dirt is what he would say. And I could tell you one of my favorite stories of what I got to go on a real estate visit with Kent and he had this unbelievable vision and he could look at a piece of ground and he would get in his car and he would drive around the uh, kind of a five mile radius and he would go into it. He'd see when the stores were open. If there was a gym there, what time do they open? When are they the busiest? He loved high visibility of the restaurant. So if there was a tree, uh, if they can't get rid of that tree, it'll block my restaurant. He had this ability to see not only that restaurant in the ground, but four and five years ahead of time.
1: Yes, because of all the experiences, he could see things that other people can't.
2: Absolutely.
1: And what is the difference between a successful and an unsuccessful restaurant?
2: I think for us, it really starts with the people. Do you have the right partner in place? And then I definitely say real estate is number two. You know, Kent would admit he his early days, he made the mistake of buying opportunities that were cheap. And he said, Well, they were probably cheap for a reason, Mm -hmm. because maybe the town wasn't growing that way, or maybe the traffic pattern was shifting. He studied Sam Walton, actually, after three of the first five failed, he said, What am I doing wrong? Uh, And I think entrepreneurs sometimes Don't ever forget that your learning is over. So he went back and studied Sam Walton and his strategy on real estate and applied it. So I say it's a successful restaurant starts with the right partner and then the right location. And then after that, we have to continue. You know, we make all of our food from scratch. It is very difficult to execute on that. But that commitment to what we call legendary food, legendary service, because we can see when restaurants have done poorly, it's probably first the wrong partner, secondly, a long wrong location, but often the right partner can make a C location an a location.
1: Travis, and I know at some point, or maybe it is still the case, all of the service were wearing a T-shirt that said, I love my job. Let's talk about that. How you guys came up with that idea and was it easy to implement?
2: Yeah, that's a great story because people often think, well, I guess the company just decided to print these t-shirts and say, I love my job and hand them out and tell employees they had to wear them. Um, That story, one of our employees was flying on Southwest Airlines, had seen a button on one of the flight attendants, aprons that said, we love Southwest. And you know, we are similar to Southwest in a lot of our culture. And in fact, Kent studied Southwest and, and modeled our many of the things that we do on Southwest. And so this employee came back and said, Kent, I I love this idea. Could I make some bumper stickers that say I love my job? And he said, Absolutely. And so she made the bumper stickers and it just took off. Mm-hmm. Then it said, What about some t-shirts? And he said, sure, but I don't want you were not mandating that people have to wear these. So what we did, we have a regular t-shirt. And then you have the second option, which is I love my job. And for Kent, I think he thought this will really be telling kind of a way to evaluate our culture. The people want to wear just the regular logo shirt, or do they really love their job? And it took off like a rocket. And um, I would say the majority of people select those shirts right now, Mm-hmm. And he got the biggest enjoyment out of that because he, he felt like it really validated the culture that had been built and that our servers had certainly bought into that.
1: And it's also a testament to Kent's legacy. He created a company where so many people love their job. And it's not such a common thing to absolutely love your job.
2: That is so true. He made it fun to work here. And serving in a restaurant is a very difficult job. And he wanted to remove any of those barriers. And when I said earlier that, you know, we don't serve lunch during the week, Kent knew. He said, you know what? Because he put in the hard work. He'd served. He was a bartender many years ago. And he said, you know what happens? He said, servers, nobody wants to work the slow lunch shift. Maybe they're going to school or maybe we're their second job. And then secondly, nobody's going to come in for lunch on a Wednesday afternoon and have a steak dinner. If they come in, they're going to have a hamburger or they're going to have a salad. He said, you know what? So he took that off the table and he said, what I want to do, I want to have one great shift tonight. So when servers come in, our employees come in, it's four to 10 and we're going to have fun in this job. We're going to turn up the music. So the music, we're going to line dance. We're going to create energy and enthusiasm. We're going to wear jeans. Back when we started Texas Roadhouse, that was a lot of concepts were going towards khaki pants and long sleeve shirts and ties. And he was like, no, I want this to be a place where people want to come. And now jeans are very commonplace. But back in the day, the trend was a long sleeve shirt and a tie. He hated ties. And so I think he, he never forgot what it was like to be an employee on the front lines. And so he just wanted to make it fun. He always said, if employees are having fun, our guests will have fun. And he was right. And he'd love to go in a restaurant and he'd say, what I will do is I look at the guest's face and the yes. guests are smiling. Then the servers are smiling and very simple. But he certainly delivered on what he said. I want that experience. They're not just coming for food. They're coming for an experience.
1: Travis, and what are some of the things that you do as a company to ensure that your guests have a wonderful experience?
2: I think it starts with what we call legendary food. So many people, I think, that have not experienced Texas Roadhouse if they don't know who we are. And, you know, I think they come in and they say, wow. So a couple of things. First, starts with made-from-scratch food. We make it fresh every day. Secondly, as a guest comes through the restaurant, we have a baking station. So we have a baker, and they're making our famous bread. So as soon as you're seated at Texas Roadhouse, you have a, a basket of bread, And all you can eat peanuts are on the table. And usually when you're walking in, you can hear the country music playing. You can see sports on television. So it's already that atmosphere of fun, but it's not real quiet and reserved. We have this birthday saddle that sits in the restaurant. And when somebody has a birthday, our servers will ask them to sit on the saddle and the whole restaurant yells, happy birthday. So we talk about, it's an assault of the senses in that you smell the bread, you smell the steaks, You see the hand-cut steaks. We have a meat case in every restaurant where you can see the fresh-cut steaks. You feel the energy. You feel the fun. And then the other thing is our servers, the industry average. So if you go to most restaurants, your server will have maybe five to eight different tables at the same time and Kent wanted our servers to only have three stations at a time. And what that means is there's more opportunities for them to interact with the guest. but hopefully your drink is always filled. Your food comes out fast. When you're ready to go, they're there to take your uh, payment. And so he wanted the speed of service, but not at the expense of great food. And Hopefully that when they leave that restaurant, they felt like they've had an experience beyond just dinner. Kent would talk about the managing partners of our restaurants. He would often do this. He would go into a restaurant unannounced and he would say, take me out front and introduce me to 10 of your guests by first and last name. And if they couldn't do it, he'd say, you need to get out and you need to make sure you know your guests' names. And I think that's so unusual in this day and age where we're so transactional. Kent was about building relationships, building relationships with his employees and having his employees build relationships with their guests. And, and so they see more than just a restaurant. Hopefully they see kind of a family that they can choose to uh, dine with.
1: Travis, and many startups, many young companies, they do things that cannot scale in the beginning. But what is amazing about Kent and the team is that you guys are able to continue doing those things that are very hard to scale 28 years into the business.
2: Well, I can tell you it is very hard and it's still hard, but it it can't have his basic fundamentals. And he said, we won't veer from these. And you know what he really believed? And it goes back to his experience in working for other companies. He wasn't rigid. So because when he had great ideas, they were just shot down and said, No, thank you. This is not how we do it. So he created this system. First, it's the ownership model. But secondly, he said he gave the managing partners a lot of a lot of leeway in some of the things that they could do at their restaurant. For example, how they decorated the restaurant, how they landscaped the restaurant. He always said, You can't touch the food, the menu. Sorry, that's how this worked. And so he gave them freedom, but then that gave them. They knew the rules and the guardrails that they had to follow. But he was fanatical about making sure we were consistent. Early on, he franchised because he needed to grow. But as soon as the company started being more successful, he bought those back because he knew consistency would be key. Um, And somebody said, well, I've eaten at Texas Roadhouse in Florida and it's not that great. But I think that also goes back to that managing partner model. Because when they had the ownership, they didn't want to let Kent down, but they also did. They controlled their paycheck. I can tell you over the years, as we have gotten larger, that always becomes more difficult. It's really become, it, that becomes difficult going international. But I think that's a great area where Kent knew in certain cultures, some of our food wouldn't translate. We couldn't take peanuts uh, to certain countries, we, the country music, the line dancing. But I think the key... Chris was, he was adaptable. He was willing to adapt. And I think sometimes it becomes my way or the highway and Kent was not that way. So he knew in areas and certainly we started in 93. There are things that were on our menu in 1993 that are not on there now. So be willing to adapt, but not willing to compromise on your core principles, which for us is that legendary food, made from scratch food, having a meat cutter in every restaurant, made-from-scratch bread, unlimited peanuts, those things that will never change.
1: Travis, country music is important to you. What is proud-to-be-loud campaign? <laughs> uh,
2: <laughs> yeah, so Kent, I always had a reason behind everything. And we play country music in our restaurants, and it is, he liked to turn it up. He was pretty adamant about that. And, and his reason why was, and once people heard the why's, Um, they'd go, okay. So one thing was for the servers. He felt it created that energy. He didn't just want any country music. It had to be upbeat. And he always felt like it just kept them motivated and it was fun. And then for for the guests, when you're having a meal and he wanted it to be a a place where anybody could come. He always said a lot of times, maybe families with young children don't feel like they can go out because their child may scream or make a noise. And he said, you know, I just want to I want to make a place where anybody can come and they won't have to worry about that. But Consumer Reports magazine does an annual assessment of restaurants. And one year they, they rate them on bathrooms and food and everything. And they have a metric for how noisy is the restaurant. And so we had got an advanced copy and we heard that they were going to tell how loud we were. And in true Kent fashion, control the message. He said, you know what, let's have fun with this instead of letting them be negative and saying, you guys are too loud, he said, why don't we just come out and admit it and say, we're proud to be loud. Mm -hmm. And that's what we did. And we went out and and had t-shirts made and we put it, sent out press releases and, and went on TV. And he had a very funny quote. He said, he felt like upbeat country music sure beats the heck out of clinking wine glasses, and chirping crickets in a restaurant that's not that busy. (laughs) and So it was one of those things that really motivated our employees. And it was kind of a rallying point. So we took what could have been demotivator and used it to motivate folks.
1: That's a very, very smart way to manage it. And I love this idea to create a space for people who maybe have a family and young children who make a lot of noise. And then now they have a place to go without being worried.
2: Yeah, I can tell you from, you know, and I've worked here a long time, you know, the very first restaurant my wife and I took our young son to was Texas Roadhouse. And we actually had that conversation of, and he did, he cried or if he screamed or nobody would look at us like, can you believe it? Sort of, unfortunately, like people have on airplanes. If somebody's uh, screaming, everybody looks at the mother and he said, you know, Texas Roadhouse is a place for everyone. And, uh, that's the other thing with, I think, families. And when somebody sits and kids, man, they're hungry. They're ready to eat. Mm-hmm. And you've already got that bread on the table and the peanuts. And mm. you know, I'm sure over the years, many children have probably thrown a stray peanut at somebody or another. But it really is. I love uh, several years ago, we, we were named on a report of, of a great first date place. <laughs> and they asked the participants why they like Texas Roadhouse for their first date. And they said, it's because it was there was a lot going on, and they didn't feel like they stood out. Like somebody's going to go, "Oh, look at them! They're on a first date." Yes. <laughs> kind of blend in, and the and they were and they could look around, and so we kind of have the whole spectrum.
1: So it's a place where you will fit in. I love it. Texas Roadhouse is about twenty eight years old now. Is it hard to believe? <laughs>
2: It's very hard to believe, but I can tell you, we don't act like we're 28. I, I think sometimes we act like we're still this startup that's going to fail if, if we're not all given our best.
1: And your menus are very similar. You still make your food from scratch. You still do free peanuts, free bread. But how did you see company evolved over this 28 years?
2: Well, I think probably the biggest evolution for us was we went from... Franchising early on, and then realize you know what we, we can do this in a different way and do it in the managing partner model, and I think that was the probably the biggest change, because you know our menu Kent would say in 1993 our biggest seller was the six ounce sirloin, and I can tell you in uh, 2021 our number one seller is the six ounce sirloin. Mm-hmm. Our menu has stayed really really consistent, but I'd say the the managing partner model would be first. Owning the company restaurants instead of franchising. And then I think that the third was never losing what we call our people focus. Yes. Is not ever thinking, oh, we have this great food. It doesn't matter who's serving it or who's working there. Is uh, we talk about, uh, I mentioned the quote, we're just a people first company. It just happens to serve steaks. And I think sometimes it's easy for a company to believe their own press. And then start saying, you know, we've got this figured out. But as Kent would say, never let your foot off the pedal.
1: Mm. Kent used to do six weeks fall tour every year. Could you tell us more about this and how our listeners can implement something like this?
2: Absolutely. And we still do it. This will be the first year without Kent, but we are going to, to still. And so fall tour is really a listening tour. Kent always believed The further away you got from the front line, the more diluted the message was. And so he would uh, set aside six weeks every year in the fall and would go visit different cities. And, And the goal was to meet with every managing partner of every restaurant and to just listen, hear what's on their mind. What are we doing? What can we make better? What are your struggles? And so the managing partners, first of all, couldn't believe that they had the opportunity every year to to be in front of the founder. And really, if they had complaints, lay them out there. Hmm. And Kent would often, somebody would ask a question, having trouble getting restaurant supplies in my restaurant. He'd pick up the phone and he would call the person in charge of restaurant supplies and saying, I'm sitting here in Arizona and they can't get their product. How are we going to get this fixed in 24 hours? And so it's phenomenal for those working in the restaurants to know they have a voice and to know that our ultimate job is to support them. He enjoyed doing it because he would learn something, first of all, but think about it this way. He would often learn if some other people maybe at our corporate office weren't doing their job correctly, and he could correct that as well. But I think a lot of companies maybe think that their folks want to hear them talking to them. And Kent always realized they really just want to talk to me and, and they want leadership to listen to them.
1: Kent prided himself on being an outside-the-box thinker. What do you think was the most of the wall strategy he tried at Texas Roadhouse that turned out to be very successful?
2: Well, I would say the most out-of-the-box, and it may have been because he didn't have the money. But early on, he decided, I, I'm not going to do advertising. A, because he didn't think he could afford it. But he tells a really great story in the book that this was pre-Texas Roadhouse, but it was his first restaurant concept called Aspen Creek. He met a gentleman that had was a DJ on the local radio station. And so he worked out a deal that said, if you'll talk about me and talk about Aspen Creek, and if you'll come into the restaurant dine with us, I'll give you free food. And I think he learned the power of that, what we call that third party endorsement secondly about getting out into the community and then making relationships and we still to this day every store has a what's called a local store marketer and that person's job is to be in the community planning fundraisers taking free food to churches, to little leagues, to schools. We run a a reading program in different schools and we give, you finish five books a month and you get a, a free kids coin to come in and dine at restaurants. So I think he learned maybe out of necessity to have that local store approach and not a national. He used to say, you know, we're not a national chain. We're just a group of independent restaurants in different cities and uh, even over the years, in the last five or six years, people would say, oh, you guys should should advertise, and he'd say, I put my advertising dollars in free bread and free peanuts. (laughs) He said, that's the best advertising I could do. So I'd say his most out of the box would be that local store marketing approach that we still do to this day.
1: Travis, why do you think Ken decided to write this book?
2: You know, I talked to him for probably five or six years and said, Kent, I, I think you should write a book. You got such a great story. I think it could resonate with people. And in, initially, he'd say, I don't have time. I don't want to do it. I don't have time. And then finally, you know, a lot of the people that helped him become successful and that motivated him were getting older. Mm-hmm. And I think he had two purposes for this book first, to, in a way, document what they had done for him and thank them for their role in his success, whether that was his high school coach or his John Y. Brown, who helped him along the way, his parents. But then the second part in, was to lay the playbook, if you will, or the our playbook going forward to show people that don't have the opportunity to meet him or work for him is to leave that legacy of here's how we did it. And, you know, with Roadhouse, we haven't changed really those fundamentals in 28 years. And, and I hope that our employees will read it and say, this will get us to the next 28 years and beyond. And it's really hard to read. I'll be honest with, for me, because he wrote this book. He's not somebody to say, hey, I'm going to outsource it, and put my name mm-hmm. on it. And it's not an egocentric book. And it's hard for me to read now that we don't have him anymore because his voice comes alive through this book. But I've heard from so many of our employees that say, I'm so glad he wrote it. Now I know. Now I've got this playbook. Now I know what to do. If I have a question, I can read Kent's book. And and in some ways, he'll kind of tell me what to do because I'll learn it through his lessons.
1: Yes. As I was reading the book, I also could feel that it was written by Kent. It wasn't written by someone else, as is the case with many books. So I would highly encourage our listeners to read this book. It's a very rare autobiography written by the founder, by someone incredibly capable, incredibly successful, and self-made. Travis, Made From Scratch is full of lessons and leadership that Kent gleaned over the course of his life. And we spoke about some of them today, but are there any other lessons that stand out for you that you would like to mention? Absolutely.
2: Absolutely. One of my best is when Kent talked about you want to get the respect of your people, then roll up your sleeves and do the most menial tasks. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love that one that I, I employ today. You know, I work alongside them. They don't work for me. He talked about being the best leaders you know, are down to earth. but so They're also the most positive person in the room. And I loved that about Kent. When he could walk in a room, he had that smile on his face and he lifted up the room. And then also I'd say two more that he never stopped learning. And I see that in so many people that are trying to come up in their career. They kind of feel like they've arrived. And you know, he probably read 12 to 15 books a year, leadership books. And he would take ideas from me. He'd highlight them. He'd send that book to somebody else. And then the, the thing that I actually have on my desk that somebody wrote out for me, I'd say the biggest takeaway for me is that Kent always knew that I could do more or whoever he was talking to, they could do more than they realized. And so he always pushed people to be their better self. And I think that as a leader, there's thousands of people that accomplish more on their than they ever thought they could accomplish. But it was Kent kind of channeling that persistence that he had and that relentlessness. And I I really believe when people read that book, that's what their takeaway will be that you can accomplish anything.
1: I love it. And often it doesn't have to be 100% belief. Just some part of you need to believe it so you have enough motivation to keep going and not give up.
2: Just this week I've had I've asked uh, in team meetings. I've asked somebody, "Hey, can we do something?" and I can tell you twice somebody said, "Well, I don't think so." And I maybe normally I would have said, "Well, okay." And I was I, I just like, "No, I, we can do this." Now, here, let's try it a different way. Let's keep trying. And both times I came back and said, we, we did it. We got it through. And so, you know, it's just that. And so what's happened to, to both of those folks, they were so excited to come back and say, we did it. We, we, You know, we got it made. We got it done. And I think I think even if Kent was here, I may not have had that same attitude. He has left this lasting kind of leadership principles with all of us. And, you know, our current CEO says, you know, Kent always used to say, we've started this dance of Texas Roadhouse. Let's keep it going. And we've all kind of adopted that a little bit of like, let's keep this dance going.
1: Yes. Travis, is there anything in the book that gave you a new perspective on Kent and his vision for Texas Roadhouse?
2: Not really his vision of Texas Roadhouse. I can tell you What I just, I knew a little bit, but reading, you know, he would talk about his failures and how it impacted his life and, you know, being down to his last $2, but reading his story, and I just have such a greater respect for the struggles that he went through. It's easy to take it for granted, but reading, you know, when the the bank teller, hands him a note and says, you don't have enough money in this account to cover this check. And to hear when he's, you know, having to borrow money out of his kid's piggy bank and live in his parents' basements twice, being a single dad with these two young girls, it's just, it just gave me a greater appreciation for for how his story ended with Texas Roadhouse, because most people, I think they would have just said, I can't do it. I give up. I'll just go get a regular job. I tried, you know, I tried a couple of times, but just seeing that kind of that pain pour out in those pages was was uh, sad, but also very uh, motivating.
1: Travis, could you also share with us how the company was able to pivot during the pandemic? What was the biggest lessons you learned and what could you share with our listeners about the experience you had pivoting? <laughs>
2: you know, so many of us that are here today were not around 28 years ago when he started the company and he faced crisis situations, you know, three of the first five restaurants failing, bankers coming to you. And so in many ways, it was such a blessing. We might not have thought it at the time, but watching Kent in that element, when you got to realize, you know, we are 100 at the time, we were pretty much 100% dine-in in our restaurants. Yes. And, and we're hearing, OK, your restaurants are all going to be shut down and watching Kent process that information and then um, figure out what to do. I can tell you, uh, and I'm, I'm not afraid to admit I'm, I was in that room and I was wrong, as many of us were on so many things <laughs> mm-hmm. and could see two and three steps, because when he's saying, look, I think they're going to shut all the rest. I think they're going to shut the country down. You know, you had to say, ah, that's not what we're hearing. I don't know. And he immediately, he said, they're not only going to shut the restaurants down. He said, I think we're going to go to masks. I think we're going to, we're going to follow. And so what he had done over the years, he had studied Taiwan and some of these other countries, and he was able to see ahead. And so we started buying temp, um, thermometers. He started buying masks. He said, there's going to be a shortage of masks. And, sanit- and sanitizer, and so he just his ability to see quickly, and then also he had a group that he called his crazies, and it was those restaurant operators that were a little off kilter, like Kent was when it came to rules, and they could figure things out. And he'd have he'd have calls with them and say, "What are you doing? What out there? What's out there?" And you know, you had restaurants selling toilet paper because there was a shortage. You had restaurants selling little hamburgers for $5 by the side of the road. And he was able to take in all those ideas and then share them with everybody else. But I, And I'd say the last most important thing, he did not panic. And as a leader, and he, was, he said that first week, he said he gave a goal, you know, and his whole life was about setting goals. He said, we're going to do 40,000 a week per restaurant. And we'd switched it to, to go only model, which he figured that out. And everybody was like, there's no way we can get to $40,000 a week per store. And guess what? We did, you know, the first week was 25, but, you know, he set a high goal. I think two or three weeks later, we hit 40, then we hit 50, we hit 60. So, you know, so many times, and I'm guilty of it, we're all guilty of it. We get overwhelmed with it, and I think we get a little paralyzed by the, the, what's coming in. Mm-hmm. And we take the safe road. And an entrepreneur is not wired that way. An entrepreneur is a risk taker they wouldn't be entrepreneurs. And so he never took the safe route, but then he action. He took action, action, action. And that's how we got through it. You know, his not panicking, his vision, his leadership and his action. And then rewarding people and, you know, getting on calls and thanking those that had done great work is, you know, back to the power of a t-shirt, just a quick thing. He wrote hundreds and hundreds of thank you notes to people and send them out and said, thanks for what you're doing.
1: Travis, and are there any changes that you have made during the pandemic that you would like to remain permanent?
2: Absolutely. Some of the, probably the most obvious ones are we had to totally change our mobile app because now people couldn't come into the store. Primarily people were, were ordering, if they ordered to go from our restaurant, they would call the restaurant. They would answer and they would just walk up. What can I get you? So, and Kent, uh, he was pushing that. We need a mobile app where people can order their food. They can show up and we can deliver it to their car. The second one, I think it's kind of funny at the time, all the news on TV was negative. And he Mm -hmm. said, I don't want to show any negativity. Even sports was negative. There weren't live sports on TV. So he he changed all the TVs in our restaurants and now they're music videos (laughs) because he said, it's more fun. It's more upbeat. And then the final thing, to go, you know, before the pandemic, to go was probably 2% of our business. It's about 20% now. And we think that's here to stay in a a form. And we'd always believed that our food maybe didn't travel as well and people didn't want to order steaks to take home and eat. And we certainly learned during COVID that that's not the case.
1: Is there anything Texas Roadhouse is doing to celebrate Ken's legacy that you want people to know about?
2: Yeah, absolutely. You know, when Kent passed away, we were still in lockdowns in part of the country and we weren't able to have large gatherings. And so we did certain things via Zoom, a celebration of his life. But September 27th was Kent's birthday, and we dedicated that as Founders Day, not just this year, but going forward. And so this year we unveiled our new museum, which is a really beautiful museum that just tells the journey of Texas Roadhouse, and it was actually Kent's vision. He had laid all this out before he passed away, so we wanted to fulfill that, and then also we put a commissioned a statue out front, and in true Kent fashion, it's not just your normal statue. It's mm-hmm. a picture that he had for years of him in a pair of jeans and sandals and a cowboy hat, and he's got a cigar and a Budweiser beer. It's him very relaxed, and we are fortunate to have his family and his grandchildren on on hand, and they were able to unveil the statue. And one of his grandchildren hugged his leg when she recognized it was her grandfather. But going forward, we were also offering our stores some options that they can put up in the restaurant. There's a plaque and some have dedicated an entire table to Kent. And it's called Kent's Corner, which is really neat. And, And then going forward, Founders Day will really be about us celebrating not only the man who was our founder and our friend, but also, you know, his legacy and what it means. And so we don't lose all those guiding principles that he he left us in the book.
1: And the book becomes so instrumental now in keeping Kent's beliefs and values alive going forward.
2: Absolutely. You know, I just had a meeting this week and it's going to go in our new hire packet. So anybody that comes on board Texas Roadhouse in our support center here at corporate office or in our management, they will get a copy of that book along with a letter telling, please read this and here's why it's important. So uh, I really think it's going to pay going forward for many years.
1: And hopefully they will even read it before they join.
2: I hope so. (laughs) hope so. Let's hope they read it and then they want to join Texas Roadhouse because they want to be a part of something so special.
1: Exactly. What do you hope people will take away from reading Made from Scratch?
2: Kent was very unassuming. He didn't want anybody to ever know that he was the founder. You know, he he used to go in the restaurants in kind of disguise. And I really hope people will realize what a huge impact that he had on the restaurant industry. Norman Brinker, who started Steak and Ale, Chili's, many other concepts, is is really seen as one of the inventors of casual dining. And I think people that read this book will, will hopefully put Kent Taylor in the same sentence with Ray Kroc, uh, Norman Brinker, because I think he had such a huge impact on not only casual dining, but thousands and thousands of employees and millions and millions of, of our guests.
1: Travis, and after working with Kent for 18 years, what are the top three lessons for you? Something that you learned? Maybe it's not even in the book, but something that was important to you.
2: First, uh, you know, he sacrificed a lot for his family to start Texas Roadhouse. And, he, you know, he admitted he wasn't around much and he was married a couple of times. And I know that was a regret of his. And so that was the first thing. And one of the things I so respected about Kent who wanted and like a lot of uh, founders and entrepreneurs, they demand a lot of your time, but Kent, if he called and he said, Oh, is that, are, are you with your family? Oh, I'll let you go. He's, you know, it would have been easy for him to say, well, I sacrificed it. So you need to, so I learned the, you know, even more of the importance and then he didn't want people to sacrifice their families like he did. Secondly, I'm an out of the box thinker. I love crazy ideas Kent really taught me how to make those crazy ideas, how to better accomplish those crazy ideas. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes you got to work behind the scenes. Sometimes you got to get people on board. So that would be one. And then finally, just don't take no, just keep pushing. I can tell you, I was so privileged to help Kent work on the book as far as helping find a publisher and helping him. You know, he, he wrote this out in hand, believe it or not. <laughs> so. I I had to do a lot of editing and trying to figure out what words these were. But I said, you know, Kent took us all along for a ride that we probably never could have done on our own. And I really want to pay that forward. I want to be that type of person with my teams that I'm leading them to lead and so they, so they can grow.
1: Travis, the last question I wanted to ask you is, what were two, three books that had the biggest impact on Kent and what are the two, three books that had a huge impact on you?
2: So for Kent, I know How to Win Friends and Influence People was a big one. It was given to him years ago. He often credited that with helping shape the way he approached people. And so that would be one. I think the uh, Jack Welch's book from How to sort of run a company, you know, Kent had run restaurants. And I know Sam Walton book had a huge impact on him from real estate. And then later in life, absolutely, A Shoe Dog by Phil Knight of Nike had a big impact on Kent because I think their stories were so similar. And then finally, American Icon. It's about Ford and their new CEO, Alan Mulally, who took over. And I I can't credit that with helping him during COVID. So how to go through traumatic times. I'd say for me, one of the books that just literally changed my life and, and I think how I approach business is was Quiet by Susan Kane, mm-hmm. because I am an introvert and I'm in a very extroverted world of communications and public relations. And so I would definitely say Quiet changed really my outlook. And then I actually give that book out a lot to people. I'm I'm kind of attracted to introverts because I think our world tells them you got to be an extrovert to be successful. And I don't believe that. And then non-business related book, but uh, Truman by David McCullough. I'm from a small town in Arkansas. And and it really motivated me to see what Harry S. Truman did coming from a small town in, in Kansas City. And he lived by his principles and integrity and he was straightforward and honest with people and he went farther than he ever could have dreamed. And so I really feel that same way.
1: Well, Travis, let people know where can they learn more about Kent, the book, anything that you want to mention, please feel free to do so.
2: Absolutely. Made from Scratch is the title of the book. You can buy it on, on bookstores everywhere, Amazon. It's in hardback. It's also, uh, there's an audio version so you can learn more about Kent there. And I'd be remiss as, as from Kent Taylor because Kent Taylor would say also drop in a Texas Roadhouse and you can see what the, the true magic of what he created. And then also uh, on our website, texasroadhouse.com, you, could, you can learn a little bit more about Kent and this great company that he created.
1: Travis, thanks again for joining me today on the Strategy Skills Podcast. Really appreciate it.
2: Thank you, Chris. It's an enjoyable time talking about my friend and, and our founder, Ken Taylor.
1: Well, thanks everyone again for tuning in. My guest again has been Travis Dosta. Make sure to check out Ken Taylor's autobiography. It's called Made From Scratch. And I will see you next time.
0: And that's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed doing the episode. Finally, I want you to remember that the only way to get access to our special offers, the only way to get our special pricing,